It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. A place in the sun is over. Mama, I am convicted. This is the unforgettable story of a boy from nowhere fighting desperately for his place in the sun, torn between the conflicting passions that shaped his destiny. Montgomery Clift, dazzled by the radiant beauty of Elizabeth Taylor, a girl so far above him she seemed like a goddess but only too human when he held her in his arms. We'll think of something somehow, whatever way we can. We'll have such wonderful times together, just the two of us. Montgomery Clift, bound by the warm and vital appeal of Shelley Winters, the girl who clung to him with an overwhelming hunger for love. I've been wanting to do that for such a long time. So did I. Will we see each other again like this? It's up to you. You gotta be careful. One love grew in the shadows of the night, sealed by a secret they could share with no one. The other love flamed in the bright light of gaiety and laughter, 
A need that drove him with all the recklessness of youth itself. A dream that was built on deception. You lied to me, George, for the last time. No, I want you to come and get me. Yes, uh, I'll come down in the morning. And if you're not here in half an hour, I'll come where you are. I'll tell them everything, George. I mean it. You, too, will know the fears, the desperation that claimed him as fate weaves the strange fabric of his life. For A Place in the Sun is a story that will forever hold a place among your greatest dramatic memories. Is your name George Eastman? Yes. You're under arrest. A Place in the Sun, Andy, is what we're talking about. And, yeah, this is a darker movie than I expected it to be. This was a uh, one that I had no idea what the movie was. I knew it was uh, Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, Shelley Winters, with George Stevens directing, but I had no clue what this was. In fact, I think in my head, I think that I was thinking this was a totally different movie. Yes. And so when I sat down to watch this, I'm like, this is not at all where I thought this story was going. Um, and it is, of course... Here, because this is the next uh, in our series, we're doing the uh, 1952 Academy Awards, uh, the Best Cinematography Black and White nominees. This is third on our list of five. So that's that's why we're here. That's why we're here. I, I'm not entirely sure what, what I, I think I, what I expected was something more along the lines of just something much more... Uh, epic, I think, based on the book, which I hadn't read, this sort of classic literature thing. I, I don't know if I expected it to be more more Scarlett O'Hara, less uh, Hitchcock, <laughs> throw him off a boat plan. But w- what we got was a movie that I was I, I was really genuinely invested in. It's, it's a lot of movie. It, there's a lot of movie in this little movie, but I found myself really uh, intrigued really intrigued. How did it hit you? Yeah, I agree completely. This, uh, again, walking into this, not really knowing anything about it other than, you know, I'd kind of watched the trailer. So I had a little bit of sense as to the sort of drama. I thought it was just going to be kind of this three-way drama between a guy who is from the wrong side of the tracks who falls for a rich girl. And that's the girl from the wrong side of the tracks who he had been with kind of comes after him. But I didn't realize it was going to go the direction it did. And I didn't realize that we were going to really kind of spend the last act in a courtroom. So a lot of interesting shifts going on in this that found that, I don't know, I found this to just be an exciting film to discover. And I think a lot of it is the actors. I mean, Montgomery Clift, I've always found just a mesmerizing actor, just the way that he internalizes so much of his performance. And you can just feel so much going on with his character and read so much into him. And he certainly very much um, was one of the first people that was really kind of adapting that whole method acting concept. And it just, I felt like there was so much going on with him that he was mesmerizing. And then just the, the interesting dynamic between the two women and the world that he was in with the, with the family of the Eastman's that he was loosely a part of. And then everything going on uh, with Alice and uh, kind of the, the, the workers in the poorer world that he came from, it, it created a beautiful kind of dichotomy of worlds and this story of this man who is split between the two of them. And 
really interesting. Is and you know, I, I had no idea. I'd, I'd never heard of the book by Theodore Dreiser called An American Tragedy. I tried after I learned it was made as a film in the 30s. I tried to see if the 1931 adaptation, uh, which was called An American Tragedy, I tried to see if it was in fact available. But I couldn't find it anywhere. I don't know if that's something that I'd have to rent from like Scarecrow Video or something. Um, but that was a Joseph von Stur- Sternberg film. But as it stands, I really had a great time with this one. I, I think we should talk about Montgomery Cliff because he's carrying a lot of weight in this in this movie. And you bring up his performance just in terms of uh, adopting the method sort of style. That's one of the things that makes this movie play for me. The fact that, you know, we open with him on a country road hitchhiking. Like, I had no question who this guy was as he transformed from the sort of, you know, hitchhiking 'er ne'er-do-well to the, uh, I don't know, the shunned nephew uh, role it was his first time in the house to, uh, you know, the the uh, T-shirted uh, factory worker as he's working on the the conveyor belt in the room full of of all the other women who are folding scarves, including the romances, right? The romance that he has with Shelley Winters and then with Elizabeth Taylor. He was a complete chameleon in this movie, and I think that's one of the things to really celebrate about his performance. It it is an ambitious performance of a morally weak character that I think just stands out as someone who is complex and believable and primary to the performances of Elizabeth Taylor and Shelley Winters, which are also fantastic. He's he just I mean, I was riveted by this guy. I didn't know what to expect. And you talk about like that screen charisma. I thought he was an interesting guy to watch. Especially like early on, it was just, and I think really pairing with the cinematography. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to that conversation because the cinematography was really interesting throughout this film. But like the way that we kind of shift in the story, like right at the very beginning, as he calls his uncle, and then um, he's coming over that first time, and and the way the shots are constructed, where you know you've got the the friends of his uh his cousins coming over to hang out including Elizabeth Taylor nobody notices him he's like this little invisible uh being that is just there completely not seen by them it was just it was fascinating like they would position him in shots where he's kind of in the distance watching all of this you could tell he wants to kind of be a part of this but can't figure out how to be accepted. He doesn't feel like he's part of that world. They're not even noticing him. It was just such a fascinating way to kind of portray him. And then you can see it in his face as he's trying to figure it out over the course of the story and how to how to be part of these things and how he's so uncomfortable. But it was very carefully constructed by Stevens. And uh, I just, I, I don't know, I was really taken by clift through all of those sequences um and and you know he is a performer who does a great job of playing when he's not talking and there are so many moments for him when he's he's not talking and you're you're seeing everything through his eyes and you're getting so much out of him or another great example there's a fantastic um oneer that is i think two and a half minutes or so of him when he's back at his place and there's two phone calls one comes from Alice and then the next one comes from Angela and just his body his body language the way he's so kind of quiet and 
barely audible when he's talking to Alice. This is when she's first telling him that she's pregnant. And then he's kind of devastated. And then instantly Angela calls right away and it totally shift all in one take. And I just, I, you know, he is an actor who can really deliver when directed that way. And just, it was, it was powerful. Right. I, you know, and that, that scene, and I, you mentioned the cinematography, we should talk about the editing too, because I think the cross cutting in a lot of these scenes to establish a connection between these three characters when they're not in the same place, they're, it, it's done often in phone calls. It's done at the dinner scene where he's waiting or where she is waiting for him and she gets on a train and decides to head up and see him. And those, like the intensity of, of the, the three way conversations that don't actually happen that are implied by editing and camera i think are really really strong <laughs> it's so cool it's so cool the way they pull that together paired with shelly winters who you know we've talked about a few times and it's generally been later in her career when she's having a lot more fun <laughs> in her roles and things like the poseidon adventure, poseidon and adventure right? octopus um but then <laughs> uh also you know she was in uh closer to this time uh you know something like night of the hunter so i think that there's uh, a lot of power that she brings to the performance and is perfect to play opposite him in this film especially um i mean the 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 draw between them is very quick like it happens over I don't know, of course, uh, I don't know. I don't know how long he was at the factory before they really started dating, but like a, a couple of weeks Six or eight so. hours. Who <laughs> <laughs> knows? Very, very quick. <laughs> long enough for him to get into his, uh, his T-shirt, right? But I mean, they go, he bumps into her at the movie theater and next thing he knows or they know, like they're walking down the street holding hands, like they already had a, a draw to each other. And so the idea of kind of like, coming together was pretty easy and natural for the two of them but from there he is like a player he's very fast moving and he gets her into bed very quickly but just the way that Shelley Winters plays all of that like you can tell that she's wanting to be in this relationship with him she wants to like she's very accepting of him and very happy with him and it seems like something that is it could have been fine had it not been this draw that he always had to to Angela Vickers, uh, played by Elizabeth Taylor. It's just that he always thought she was of a different world and would never accept him. And it was only because of that moment where she started talking to him when he was playing pool by himself that suddenly things shifted. And so, and then from that point, watching Shelley Winter's face every time they're interacting, like you can tell she's she's in this battle with herself trying to not be the jealous girl with trying to still be positive and excited. And then the whole pregnancy thing happens and everything shifts again. Just, I mean, very strong performance by Shelly Winters. It really is because, you know, I mean, this, the, the three-way relationship between these two, like he's in the middle and he is reaching for Angela, right? He's striving to be good enough to, to be with Angela. And he's, but he's already sort of settled. And I say that in quotes, settled for Alice. And I think that's what Shelley Winters does so well is she plays that role of 
the the settled girlfriend um and and gives us the perspective of what it's like to be the settled girlfriend uh so beautifully like how badly she doesn't want to be the crazy one like she doesn't want to 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 you know be the one to get on the train she wants to trust and he's given her no reason to trust and that's part of the complexity of his performance that they're Around every turn, he has an opportunity to make the sort of morally right decision to stay with her, to do the right thing by her. And all he can come up with is throw her off a boat like the dude is not someone uh, to uh, to aspire to. Right. He's just so in that respect, it 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 sort of resolves into this portrayal of the American dream in which names matter more than intention and action right it it's not a great portrayal we're talking about it, the title of the book an american tragedy right it's it's that's a an intentional play on even back in this period we were we were dealing with the the issues of you know sort of the 1% and what they can have even when you put a nice elderly face on it you know in the form of senior eastman man it is just fantastic and layered well and it really also is speaking to the american dream right and this is something that i think that george eastman montgomery cliff's character had been striving for all of his life is breaking out of the poverty you know he came from as as over the course of the story we're kind of getting hints as to his family and kind of this religious family that he came from like his family's running like a mission shelter but they're also like street side singers and everything and and you know he was it sounds like the system caught on to him or them doing this and that he wasn't in school. And so the the system required him to go into school, but then he left it early. And so he never really had the education, but it's clear, like he kind of always wanted more. And so to the point where, as we learn from the, over the course of the story, he ran into his uncle just completely by happenstance. And his uncle was just like, Hey, yeah, if you're ever in town, uh, yeah, hit me up and we'll see if we can help you out. And, he instantly like quits his job and comes out here. Like this is a person who's striving for something more. He clearly wants more and is trying to do everything he can to get it. And I think he probably would have been able to move right into that perfect American dream. Had it not been for this relationship that he so quickly got into with Alice, you know, if he had followed the rules and just not got involved with any co-workers that never would have happened and he would have had this uh, life living the high life because he kept kind of moving up the ranks at the factory uh you know it seemed like uh angela's family they kind of you know bought into this guy and were all aboard to welcome him as a part of the family and her new husband and all this and it was only by these other decisions that he made that really kind of brought him down. And so it's an interesting look at the American dream and somebody who's so keen on getting there, but also is, uh, you know, their own downfall. Well, and I think we get, yeah, I think that's a really important note that he, like from the opening shot, that long shot behind his head, he is effectively worshiping at the billboard of Eastman. Like there is no question he quit his other job intentionally in order to go get his way uh, work his way into this big company with using like trading on his name and that's kind of the magic of of the 
of Cliff's performance too, right? Which is to which is to say, oh, he can be this sort of clumsy guy, but the truth is he's taking the easy way. Like even working in the factory, there is no question in my mind that he is intentionally trying to work up in into this this family's uh, business. It just I, I I don't think the guy quits his other job, you know, on accident if not for having this easy opportunity with his uncle available to him. Yeah, right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like he's yeah. he's looking at every opportunity to advance himself. Yeah. Even, you know, he starts at an entry level job like basically sorting boxes and is already writing detailed outlines to his uncle, not that his yeah. uncle ever gets them, but he's writing detailed outlines about this is how I think we can speed up the process. I think we can increase 20 by 20 to 25% if we make these changes. Like he is somebody who's already thinking about these things. And so looking for chances to improve himself, whether by his own ingenuity or by the fact that his family is in, like he'll take any chance he gets to get there. Yeah. And and look at the that exchange with his uncle when he says, you know, I wrote this report. His uncle doesn't even I mean, he doesn't acknowledge that <laughs> it was ever received, but it right. doesn't matter. The fact that he wrote the thing is all it took for his uncle to say, come on out to the house. Right. Like that's all it took, because his uncle is just as as, as you know, guilty of this sort of nepotism in business as as yeah, as he's trying to achieve himself. And I think it also speaks to the fact that there is this element of beauty that is also tied into this world. I think the fact that Montgomery Clift is a very handsome man, even though he's in this lower rank, if it was a less handsome man playing this character, I think that uncle would have a harder time welcoming him to those higher echelons within the company, you know, but he's, he looks the part, he acts the part enough that he can get by. And you look at everything else in that world. I mean, you've got Elizabeth Taylor, you've got already all of these handsome, beautiful, attractive people in that world. And I think Shelley Winters as, as beautiful as she is, you know, she, she noted that she was a little frustrated that uh, Stevens was working so hard to, to make her look more mousy and unattractive in this film, even though it kind of fits the part. But she said it ended up leading to a lot more of that type of role. And she felt like she ended up getting pigeonholed in kind of these, these mousier roles. And she was a little frustrated with that. But at the same time, she worked so well in that, but it's that, it's that line that they're dancing. And it, it speaks to the fact that the Eastman company sells swimsuits. All the billboards are beautiful women laying on the beach, smiling out at you. And I think it's, yeah. it all ties in so perfectly to this, this rift between these two worlds. And, and just by, you know, his own, it's hard to say nepotism, a little bit of skill, a little bit of luck. The fact that he's is a fairly honest character, I, I think, in some aspects, I think all of those things kind of help him get to that place. Yeah, you point out the swimsuits. I think that's a that's a great point. But also his admiration of male fashion, too. Right. He's always trying to, like, up his game. We see him ogling suits in stores. He wears them. He shows up at different places like he's reaching. He's trying to do what he can to fit in. And I, I think that's another one of those statements of the film is that, like, everybody's reaching to fit in. 
And it's it's a little bit more subtle. I don't know, maybe because it's more dated. I think if the movie were remade right now, it would be a little bit more ham-fisted than how it how it slams home the dangers of capitalism and nepo babies. But man, it's it's all here. Yeah, isn't it a little funny that all the stuff that he does in business to work up, you never really get a sense that he fails in business, right? The the stuff that he that that brings him down are the are the decisions that he makes with his interpersonal relationships, and we never get a sense of it. Was he actually really good? This is not a working girl kind of a story, right? Where he shows up and nobody expects him to succeed, and it turns out he's really talented. He he might be, but the movie doesn't ever give us that that sense. The movie all the movie says is all you have to know is his name. That's all you need to know. Exactly. We never see that uncle finally reading that outline for uh, you know increasing production, implementing yeah. it, and finding out that wow, it actually not only twenty to twenty five percent, it's fifty percent better. <laughs> like we never right. get that. <laughs> and he organized a leveraged buyout of the Kodak Corporation, right? Like who knows, <laughs> right? What it is. that's all I could think about was Eastwood yeah. Kodak, right? Or right. Like we never get that sense, and I think that's an important note for me is that the movie isn't necessarily like, as much as it's sort of about the American dream. It's kind of American dream adjacent because he makes it not by the sweat of his on, on his back. Like we only get a little bit of sweat on his back <laughs> in the in the t-shirt, and then he's wearing nice sunglasses and a nice. Um, Bahama shirt. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I think that it is a, a really interesting portrayal of just like this character trying to advance at every opportunity that he could. And it is so interesting that he was so fast in that relationship with Alice. I mean, not only is it like that first chance meeting at the movie theater that, you know, instantly starts their relationship, but like the way that that first time that they have sex back at her apartment, the way that that happens, it feels like so unexpected and it feels like he's kind of pushing her into it. And I mean, again, it's they kind of acknowledge that these two really want to be together. It never felt rapey. It never felt like, you know, he was pushing her without her desires, but it certainly felt like it was going a little faster than she was maybe wanting. But the way that they kind of portrayed that, it just, it was so interesting in the way that Stevens kind of shot that whole thing. Because again, it's a very dark room. Like this film was a very dark film and it's a single shot that just slowly kind of pushes in past them as they start, um, you know, kissing and everything. And then we just kind of push it on the radio until suddenly it kind of dissolves. We hear a rooster crow and we see him <laughs> leaving. And it's just like the way that the film was constructed was it gave us like his motivations and his just like his journey, like being so fast with some of this in incredible ways. Yeah, right. That's also part of his story. As much as he's aggressively moving up the ranks at Eastman and doing so in the most subtle way, he's aggressively moving forward in every single aspect of his life, right? And that's what drives him to push those relationships with Alice and Vickers. You know, it's that's what drives him to keep moving forward in those relationships at the expense of what he's left behind, right? The trail of destruction. That's the that's the other piece of this movie is it's a trail of destruction movie and he he has to reckon with that at the end. And that's the part I didn't see coming. If we jump just to the end of the film in his arc in particular, 
the end of the film, the end title credit comes up and he is dead man walking, right? Like that's the end. He's convicted and of, of murdering Alice. And I think the way they got there, the way they wrote themselves into that sort of implied confession when the, I guess it was the priest was talking to him in the cell and asked him, you know, what was in your heart, right? If you were thinking about this other woman when you were making the choice of whether or not you should fight to save Alice, then murder was in your heart. You're a murderer. And the look of recognition on George's face when he's realizing this, I thought was incredible. Like, this is a Just Desserts movie. And I think the commentary part of the film, had it been made later, he probably would have gotten off because that's the commentary we make. That's the thing that makes us more sick right now about the 1% is that names matter enough to get you out of murder. I couldn't help but reflect on that as I'm watching this movie that I'm relieved that it ended the way it did and in equal part surprised that just because of of culture. Did that hit you funny at all? No, I, I completely agree. It was it was so interesting in the way that it was constructed because there is kind of this expectation and I think it plays on us as an audience also like you know where do we stand with this guy? I mean we're watching him. We're there. We're the only really people there in the water with him when all of this happens. We see what happens. We see that he didn't make the decision to like hit her over the head with an oar and throw her into the water. We actually see that he's frustrated he goes to the front of the boat, lays down, and she stands and starts walking, and the boat topples over, throwing them into the water. We do cut from there, though, to the point where he's kind of making his way to shore, so we don't get to see that critical moment of him not answering her calls or answering them too late. And so we're kind of going off of the conversation, but we're kind of there with uh, his uncle and everyone else as they're talking, and because his, his uncle has that conversation with his team saying, you know what, if everything that he said is true, then we're going to spend everything we have to help him out. But if we think that he actually did it, then he's not getting a cent. And the story that George tells the lawyers, they walk out saying, I don't know, I completely believe him. He is so forthright in the way that he talks and describes things that all of that is true like he gets himself to a point where he's believing it and it really isn't until that final moment when that priest comes in and is talking with him he finally has that moment of realization sure he didn't actually go through with the murder but it was in his heart he was thinking about angela and he probably could have gotten around and saved her and we kind of get that through Raymond Burr as the DA kind of, uh, you know, attacking him and everything in court. But it really is that final moment where he realizes, oh, my gosh, yeah, I guess I am responsible for this. As, and as an audience, we're like, wow, yeah, you are. And like, I loved like there's fantastic shots of Clift in court when he's up on the stand, the witness stand, and you have the whole jury behind him. And it's kind of a it's not like a really long lens, but it's long enough where it is just kind of compressed. It feels like they're sitting like right next to him, just listening to everything he says. And it was so interesting looking at their faces because it was an exercise in storytelling, looking at the faces. Like, I think I'm believing that person. Oh, maybe I'm not believing that person. Oh no, I think I am. No, maybe I'm not. Like 
you could never exactly <laughs> tell which side they were on. It just it played perfectly. Where were you in that uh, it wavering back and forth? Like, did you were you on team convict the whole time? I wasn't because uh, I I didn't see him kill her, and I didn't see like they very purposefully don't show that bit in the water where really everything comes down to it and the way that the lawyers were spinning it were like he may have had murder in his heart but he didn't go through with it i'm like well it's hard to convict then but when you kind of when the da kind of spells it all out like you were only that far from her like he's doing all of his stuff with the boat you could have swum around you had plenty of time to get there and to help her but you why did it take you so long to swim that distance and it does start kind of raising those questions. And I think that was the point in the film, like, he probably could have done it. And I, I was starting to shift, too. You can see why um, later producers would recognize in Raymond Burr a performance that would lead him to Perry Mason, because it's like he was so perfect as that role and terrifying. Like, holy cow, when the DA, like when he takes that or like smashes and it smashes down the, the boat. boat? Like, wow, is that allowed in court? <laughs> The the thing that frustrated me a little bit is that because I'm I'm with you that you know I was swinging both ways too. The fact that they convicted him with first degree murder is was a little bit puzzling to me because that is that's the prosecutor one. The prosecutor said you uh, fully intended to kill her and. You know, you swung the oar kind of a thing. You t- tipped the boat. You did that. And I think what we see in the, the stuff that the audience sees as we're in the boat with them is not that. What we see is a guy who is at the last minute deeply conflicted, right? We don't know what he's going to do, but we know he stood to step away from her to the back of the boat. We know he was conflicted. And the fact that the boat tipped over and that he didn't save her is second degree right like that's he knows that his like his his behavior is something that resulted in her death because he didn't swim around the boat to get her and probably wouldn't have led to the death penalty so i think some of those were a bit of like narrative hoops that they jumped through to to get us there to that title card which was super dramatic and i like the way we got there especially because the point of the story is what's in his heart What's in his heart doesn't necessarily imply only the stuff that we see in the jail cell or about the trial. But what's been in his heart from the very opening shot has been aspiration, climb the ladder, climb the ladder. And now he's he's having to, you know, reap those results. Well, and that is I I wasn't sure like where that landed as far as like the legal system at the time, like would that have been manslaughter? Like, where should that have landed? And I can't help but think some of that really boils down to the real case that this was based on. This was based on the book An American Tragedy by um, Theodore Dreiser, who based that on the actual murder of Grace May Brown uh, in 1906. And she was murdered by her boyfriend, Chester Gillette, on Big Moose Lake in New York after she told him she was pregnant. In that particular case, it seemed like he did actually um, hit her with over the head with a tennis racket and and drown her. And they they said it was a premeditated murder. He was sentenced to death. He was um, uh, killed in the electric chair. And so I can't help but think that they were, to a certain extent, 
still trying to you know stay close to that actual case which you know i'm i'm assuming dreiser also did in his book well i think that's really interesting i think that's a that's a funny sort of artifact of the uh, of adapting the book that maybe on screen and certainly it, it's a touch dated since we don't know the you know the law as well as you know <laughs> we don't know the law at all. What are we talking about? Well, <laughs> okay, so we've been talking about Montgomery Cliff for a long, long time. Let's talk about uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, we haven't mentioned really her much at all. Elizabeth Taylor, uh, 17 at the time, she made this. And this was, uh, you know, we talked about in our member pre-show chat a little bit about uh, child actors and their uh, performances where they kind of advance to more mature roles. She always saw this as kind of the, her first step into being in more serious fare. Yeah, I mean, she's only 17, but there's definitely a lot going on here. And I think, you know, she's acknowledged, you know, she ended up having a very strong friendship with Montgomery Clift after this that kind of lasted through their life. Uh, his story is tragic, you know, after his car accident that kind of left his face messed up and he didn't end up really doing much more after that and ended up with a drinking problem and dying early, just kind of really sad and tragic life. But she was always there. I think they were in three films together. Um, she was always there by his side through everything. But I think that there is this, this sense of this teenager, you know, the 17 year old girl, she's still in school, but I, I found her performance just to be really energetic, very, uh, very strong. she I mean, it's easy to see why he's drawn in so much because I was drawn in right away. Like, she's just mesmerizing to see on screen. I think it helps that Edith Head's costumes work so well on her. And she's just gorgeous. It was just, it was perfect. And, like, their kiss that uh, that they have in this film, is it was just, it was so um electric and i mean i think i saw it on some list of like you know hot kisses in film or something like that it was it was a very exciting moment to see they they worked so well together and it was interesting because the kiss that they have is also like shot behind them and it's behind his shoulder and so it's kind of obscured by him for a large chunk of it but it's still there is something about it still that even shooting it that way made it even more interesting because you know it's it's that much more hidden i don't know i just she was just a thrill in the film yeah i think so too and i think just the focus on her eyes that's another one of those montage clips that you see all the time which is like just the camera the way she throws herself at his mouth in extreme close up is i think it's a fascinating choice and and the act of obscuring most of her face just lets us focus on a really compelling physical attribute of elizabeth taylor which is her closed eyes they are just dreamy just get lost in them woof dreaming she's uh she's pretty great are are you a real taylor head do you celebrate the whole catalog have you seen quo Vadis as many times as you've seen giant for example you know i've not seen that one but it's uh, one that i've actually always been curious about i love watching her on screen i you know any chance that i have i think it's great to just see her because she is so interesting and she delivers such interesting performances whether it's uh things like this or um Cleopatra, which is, uh, you know, certainly a big one, and into something like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Like, I just, I find her to be uh, just a constant 
thrill to watch in whatever it is that I've seen of hers. Yeah. It's funny to see just where she went sort of toward the the graying years of her career. Like I, I had forgotten that she was on things like Can't Hurry Love and High Society and Murphy Brown and The Nanny. I mean, was she on those shows? <laughs> Did she actually show up? Uh, or was it, was it a clip show? Like, I don't remember, but it feels like Murphy Brown would have been something that she might have shown up for. Just a really interesting choice for somebody like Elizabeth Taylor, who in my head never would have done that. Well, I mean, her last feature film performance was in the Flintstones. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it happened. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. Have What have we talked about? Have we talked about anything of hers on this show? This might be the first. No, Giant. Giant. We did talk about Giant, Giant which is the only yeah. other film of hers that we've had a chance to chat about. Interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. Somebody who we definitely need to uh, look at more because I think that she just brings a lot of energy to her performances even when it's not as big a performance like i think between the three performances it's certainly montgomery clift and shelly winters who have the bigger performances but even like her relationship with him especially as we get to the end and his life starts spiraling out of control i still found that she was delivering a lot with her confusion in the relationship and that final conversation when she comes to the prison to visit him. I mean, it was just, it was just beautiful. Well, Taylor's wonderful. Really enjoyed seeing her in this. It's not the hugest of huge parts, but man, does she make for a, a perfect foil for this three-way romance. And I guess the dress that she was wearing to a camera was one of the, one of the many, soirees that they're at um those in fact i think it's the soiree when she first meets him uh, she's wearing that that white gown with all of the white flowers all over the the front and i guess that design that edith, edith head came up with was so popular because of this film like through that whole next decade that was a major dress design for proms and other dances and weddings all sorts of stuff it was a it was a huge influence in the world of fashion but do you know her nicknames edith head no elizabeth taylor subject of the dress uh no Hmm. okay i'll tell you you could call her liz you could call her la liz but if you were really friendly, you could call her kitten. Oh. Which is so weird because that's what I call you all the time. <laughs> okay. That's right. Who else you got? Uh, we, we have to talk about the cinematography. Uh, it was uh, William C. Meller, who was the cinematographer of this film. Uh, what have we talked about of his? Uh, anything? Compulsion, actually, uh, a few years later. Giant. And so there have been a few uh, films of his that we've talked about. What did you think of the cinematography here? We've we've alluded to it quite a bit. I think it's great because, uh, I mean, just the way he dances with light and shadow to really tell the story of this guy's weird demeanor from any given scene. It's another one of those where, like, looking at how light affects his phone calls affects him in like their sex scene is as you mentioned it's so so dark with the outline of what the radio in the window like he plays with light in such a really interesting way to drive the story forward with the just the the beams and bars of light crossing faces the chiaroscuro uh, lighting which is 
I think one of those really interesting techniques to, to while well, uh, contrasting light and dark to also be doing it to to build that dramatic tension on screen. I think it's really lovely. And when it, and for most of the sequences, particularly when he's meeting Elizabeth Taylor, like it's very very bright. They're all like party scenes, and it it's only when they or like when he's being ignored, it's very bright. Like in the most obvious sequence where they are in the scene together the thing is incredibly well lit and he's invisible it's only when he becomes dark and mysterious that they actually you know in the pool hall that they actually begin or pool room that they actually begin having their relationship i think that's really interesting what is compelling about that character and how is it demonstrated with light really quite beautiful and i mean one scene that stands out to me i already mentioned the one or when he's on the phone just the way that that was constructed and shot but also like everything going on on that climactic lake sequence when he takes alice out on the boat and it's just it it just gets darker and darker and darker and you just have this lit up boat out in the middle of just black water it worked so well in context of the mood and the tone that they were trying to create with everything here and i just i i was really i don't know it was exciting cinematography it's interesting that that this would go on to beat something like Death of a Salesman, which was really using cinematography to its advantage throughout, but also um, in in kind of a, a uh, subjective way as we kind of go into the character's head. And I, I suppose you could say that is true here, but I it's interesting that this one, I think, is a little less overt than that film, and then this is the one that would go on winning. Less overt, but I'm, man, pushing some of the tonal differences. Like, it it feels, there are parts when we get into the legal bit, and they're chasing through the woods, and they we are introduced to the police investigators that are, it's just downright noir. And and I think that swing of tonality for the film, like using light and camera to to define the changes in the, the overall tone of the film, I think is just expert. Like, it's it's beautiful. And we talked about how so much of, of Death of a Salesman, even in using the the camera the way they did, still felt so much like a set, like we were filming a play and pieces were moving around in a giant soundstage. Uh, it, it, this this movie is not that at all. They and, and then I think paired with the editing, William Hornbeck was the editor. Mm-hmm. The way that um, I, maybe not the editing so much, but specifically the way that uh, George Stevens chose to get from scene to scene and sequence to sequence with dissolves. Like there were so many dissolves in this film, and some of them were fairly lengthy to the point where there was a shot. This was right in the boat after I, I I think that they he has just stopped the boat with Angela. They were just talking and she was talking about, oh, it was all it was, you know, I, I have such different feelings about it ever since the drownings last summer. And she he kind of she leaves that with him and then she kind of disappears. You have him sitting in the boat. You can clearly tell that he's starting to formulate things in his head. And then we get this really slow dissolve back to Alice. And I can't remember what specifically she was doing, but the water is so dark and it's a it's a great dissolve because Alice is just kind of hovering over the water over the course of this dissolve with him still sitting in the boat before we kind of finish the dissolve. And that happened a number of times with dissolves that just yeah. made them very effective and really put you in a place of being in George's head right up to the end where as he's walking to, you know, to his execution, we have a dissolve 
of again that kiss that that beautiful kiss between George and Angela before it comes back and we just see him walking through uh, to death row both dramatic and super practical right like that that first dissolve from their first kiss dissolves into like later in their relationship in a way that's just like perfectly matched to demonstrate time passing like what a great way to demonstrate time is get lost in a kiss uh i think it's just really lovely so this film was highly acclaimed when it came out but over time people started saying that it felt really exaggerated it was slowly paced the social commentary it felt felt dated I read that and then I saw the film and I'm like, oh, well, I didn't really think so. Like I felt, I felt this was really quite strong. I mean, how does, did that, does that strike you at all? Can you see how it can be read that way through today's eyes? I don't, I no. I think I'm with you. I don't get it. I was in it, man. From, I was like on rails from the, from the first shot. I was really provoked by what, what's happening next. Yeah, me too. It, very interesting that because um, I mean I was even looking at some reviews just over on Letterboxd and some people were like God what a bore and I just I I don't know I guess maybe there's just a, a a mentality that goes along with watching some older films but I mean I just I found this just to be a thrill and I was invested in these all three of these characters I just I found it to be uh, just exhilarating I think it could be just that some people don't like old movies. <laughs> Yeah, there could be that. Everything. Once you like, I I think there it's easy to put up modern cultural barriers around yourself. And when those run into conflict with a piece of art, it's pretty easy to say that art is bad because it doesn't hold up. But the art wasn't made with your cultural barriers in mind. I have them, too. Uh, I get it. But it is interesting because, like, I feel if you're invested in these characters, I just don't feel it lulls at all. I feel it's a very engaging film. So uh, who knows? That was certainly my experience. This was a film affected by the production code at the time. Um, Alice, of course, uh, wants to get an abortion, but they had problems with the line in the script when she comes to visit the doctor and says, doctor, you've got to help me. And they forced them to change the line. So she said, somebody's got to help me. And that is how how that is delivered. But it's such a strange uh, the production code. I tell you because it's so clear to me that it is all about abortion, and so it's so weird that they're even allowing the the story to be told at all. Because it's like clearly they want an abortion. Like how could you read that any other way? Yeah, and she's sitting with uh, objectively the guy's a doctor. Like, that's the that I don't know how to mistake that. I don't know how to mistake it. It's just such a uh, uh, it's one of those above the line, like, check this box. You cannot say in real words that a doctor is being asked for this service. What it actually did, and I thought it was fairly interesting, is it made for a very interesting play between her and the doctor, because it's it ended up feeling like. A, a woman who is asking for an abortion in a very roundabout way because she didn't know how the doctor would respond. And so she's making up this whole story and she's telling all of these lies. And then, of course, he's just like, oh, you'll be fine. You'll figure it out. And then she comes out and tells the real story. And he still is like, I can't help you. But it, it ended up, I don't know, I, I, I felt if that was 
the the answer that Stevens and his writers came to in order to get around the production code, I felt like they made an exceptional scene out of it. Yeah, it was much better because it gave her a lot more to work with, Shelley Winters, right? To be able to to uh, be more deliberate in the complexity of her request. Uh, I think it was perfect. And he becomes so much more of a jerk after the truth is out, right? You expect some, some sort of, I, I don't know, I guess a little sympathy to, you know, once the truth is out. But he is just, it's so of a time that he became worse like culturally subservient to the norms of the time and uh, and and cold really cold uh at the end of that scene it was a great scene yeah I, I just think that he's he's playing into the darkness so well in scenes like that mm-hmm. my last little note was did you know i know how much you love david mamet david mamet says this is one of four perfect films mamet said that yeah, this is in his book, Bambi versus Godzilla, on the nature, purpose, and practice of the movie business. This, The Godfather, no surprise there. Galaxy Quest, that <laughs> only surprises me coming from David Mamet. Like, from David it's Mamet. A fantastic movie, he's he's not wrong. Him. He's not, but still. <laughs> Last, Dodsworth, the 1936 film. I haven't. That's the one I haven't seen, Dodsworth. Uh, it's a good film. It is definitely a good film. I watched it somewhat recently, and now I feel like I need to go back and revisit it because I'm like, gosh, I, I wasn't thinking it in those terms, but now I need to check it again to see, you know, what I think of it. So, anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I love it. I think it's great. I loved it. Fantastic. Uh, glad we had a chance to chat about it. So, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Ian Post, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named 
desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right. Sequels and remakes, Andy. How many times? Uh, I mean, is there a sequel to this? Do we get to see him uh, in the chair? How does that work? It's a very short sequel. <laughs> very short sequel. Yeah. Uh, no, no sequels, but certainly, and no no remakes of this particular film, but certainly there have been other adaptations of the source material in American Tragedy. There had been a stage adaptation in 1926, and in fact, this film is partially based on that stage adaptation in the, you'll see in the credits. Uh, Sternberg's 1931 version that I already mentioned, and apparently the author was very unhappy with that version. Um, there was a, more stage versions, uh, there was radio shows, um, there was a I think a TV version made in Brazil, there was an opera. Um, some people say that Woody Allen pulled a lot from this story for his film Match Point, which I guess I can see to a certain extent. You know, a lot of people say that they've there have been a lot of references in other books and TV shows and things like that, but there have not been any other overt actual adaptations of the book other than kind of those ones I was just mentioning. You know, I'm kind of surprised this movie doesn't have more of a remake appeal. You know, like what's the what's the one that we did the whole series on the uh, Stars Born? Yeah, it it surprises me. I think this movie should be fodder for that kind of. I'd be interested to see how this ages over generations. Well, I certainly am curious about the book now, just to see like how how different this was. I mean, it sounds fairly similar. Honestly, this version to that version. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd be curious to learn more. And I wonder if it's just because of the actual true crime element of it that is keeping people from it. Or I don't know. I'm curious. I'm curious why it hasn't drawn more people to it. How did it do at award season? It did really well for itself. This film ended up with 15 wins and 10 other nominations. At the Oscars, it was second behind Streetcar Named Desire as far as the number of nominations uh it had nine nominations winning six nominated for best picture but lost to an american in paris montgomery clift was nominated for best actor but lost to uh humphrey bogart in the african queen we talked about that um in our death of a salesman episode uh shelly winters was nominated for best actress in a leading role but lost to vivian lee in a streetcar named desire george stevens won best director the script won best adapted screenplay it won this is the winner for the category of the series is about best cinematography black and white edith head won best costume design black and white it won best editing and it won best music scoring of dramatic or comedy picture at Cannes, it was nominated for the Grand Prix, but lost to Miracle in Milan and Miss Julie. At the DGA, George Stevens won the directorial, Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures Award. And the Golden Globes, we haven't really brought the Golden Globes up lately because they're, you know, they're the Golden Globes and they've kind of fallen out of favor. But it was interesting because this was the first year, I think it was the ninth Golden Globes, but it was the first year they actually split the category of Best Picture into Best Motion Picture Drama and Best Motion Picture Comedy or Musical. And this won Best Motion Picture Drama, whereas An American Paris ended up getting the comedy or musical. Uh, Shelley Winters was nominated for Best Actress in a Drama, but lost to Jane Wyman in The Blue Veil. It 
was nominated for Best Cinematography, Black and White, but lost to Death of a Salesman here. Same thing, Best Director. Um, George Stevens lost to Laszlo Benedict for Death of a Salesman. Interesting. I mean, they're both incredibly strong films, so it's it's yeah. nice to see Death of a Salesman getting some recognition, even if it is the Golden Globes. Yeah, <laughs> even if it's the Golden Globes. <laughs> Man, how the mighty have fallen. Did they ever? Uh, it was a shortfall. Um, okay. How to do at the box office. Hey, we finally got one for the series with some actual data. Stevens had a very specific budget of $2,295,304 to make this, which equates to about $26.8 million. I don't know why sometimes numbers are this way, but... um, yeah, it equates to about $26.8 million in today's dollars. The movie premiered at Cannes earlier in 1951, then opened domestically August 14th, 1951. This did well for itself and ended up being number nine in the top ten highest grossing films of the year, just above Father's Little Dividend, also with Elizabeth Taylor. All told, it went on to earn $3.5 million domestically, or $40.8 million in today's dollars. That lands it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $115,000. Mm, man, that app from just keeps giving. Ah, yes, it does. What a fan. Has the industry picked that up yet? I can't remember. I, I haven't seen any <laughs> headlines. Well, I this was a great movie. I'm really, really glad that we got to talk about it uh, in this series. And uh, I can see how it I can see how it won. I can see how it won. I can, too. I'm, I, you know, I'm looking forward to our next two just as comparison and getting a sense of those two. But so far... It's interesting. Like, thinking about the Frogmen again, I'm like, you know, in today's world, I feel like the Frogmen probably would have just gotten a technical achievement award for what it was doing and not ended up getting a nomination. But we'll talk about that in a later episode. Regardless, I had a fantastic time with this film. Definitely something I would love to see again. I'd love to see this on the big screen. I just can only imagine how beautiful the black and white is up there. But uh, really, thrilling film to... Uh, to step into uh, without knowing anything about it. I think so, too. All right, well, we'll be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. Two fellows meet, like you and I. No connection between them whatsoever. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Fantastic, isn't it? You didn't know when Bruno proposed this pact that he was serious, dead serious. You had made the mistake of speaking to a stranger on a train. And now, wherever you go, whatever you do, you find yourself dominated by his evil presence. And you, Bruno, to you, killing was the answer. Murder without clue, without motive. The perfect crime. Too perfect. And Anne. Life looked very attractive to you until the love in your heart became gripped by a terror that drew you deeper and deeper into this vortex of conspiracy. I don't like to be double-crossed. I have a murder on my conscience, but it's not my murder, Mr. Haynes. I wonder if you know how much I love you. Brazen woman, I'm the one to say that. (laughs) 
It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of I am based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter. Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. All right, Andy, it's time to talk about Letterboxd. Letterboxd is, uh, I when you think of robbing stars from future movies, how where what films are you going to take them from in order to give this five stars <laughs> i i don't know if i'm giving this five stars i really did love it though uh, i feel like i'm good putting this at four and a half for now and uh it might go up it might go down in later uh watches but four and a half with a heart is where i sit at the moment yeah i, I struggle with that because i didn't have any complaints you know what I mean? Like, I I have no complaints about this movie. So I I love the look of it. I love the feel of it. I like all the performances. I thought were great. Uh, and so I think I'm going to give it five. We'll see. You know that. Okay. I don't know. Maybe it gets worse on future viewings. Curse of recency. <laughs> but I think I will. I think I'll give it a straight up uh, five and a heart. Fantastic. Well, I love that. Uh, that lands this film over in our letterbox page, thenextreel.com slash, or letterbox.com slash thenextreel at four and three quarters. So we'll round that up to five stars and a heart. That's where this one is going to sit. So what did you think about A Place in the Sun? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd, give it, Andrew. As Letterboxd always do it. Okay, I'm going to go first because I have a question. Oh, okay. This is a one star from, from Jordan Collins. And the one star says, I'm really happy this one was removed when they did that AFI Top 100 again. So this was, for a while, I think it was like 92 on the AFI Top Films list. And this is a thing that we 
sometimes do. And there are posters of the AFI list. Like, have you seen all the movies on the AFI list? And Citizen Kane is number one. And oh my gosh, you know, we've talked about a lot of movies on the that are on the list on this very show. This used to be on there. And now it's, I think it's like, what I was looking for, I'm trying to find what is the actual number on the AFI list outside of the top 100. I think I saw 155 or something. So it, I don't know what that means, but my question for you is, is that, uh, it, do you ever think about when you see the AFI list, does it mean anything to you? I generally don't think much of the AFI's lists. I mean, they have so many of those stinking lists, you know, a hundred years, a hundred movies, you know, a hundred stars, hundred laughs, hundred thrills, hundred passions, hundred heroes and villains, hundred songs. Um, they've, they've done so many of those over time that I think that they're fun to kind of look at, but I generally don't take them as anything that's too serious in the scope of, uh, lists of greats. I think they're good starting places just to get a sense as to like what's out there. And Hey, if you're going to do, uh, you know, a watch through just to kind of watch a bunch of great films, sure. It's a good place to start. You're going to be checking a lot of great films off your list, but I think there are also, other strong places to find what I would argue are probably stronger lists. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Right. So I, I did find it was 92 on the original list. I, I think the hundred years, I don't know. I like the hundred years, hundred movies. And I thought about it when my kids were born <laughs> 20 years ago, I was thinking about the list in terms of, or I was thinking about AFI and these kinds of lists because it was a great way to get my kids to see a lot of old movies because we had a task list. I'm not sure that necessarily uh, matters all that much, but it does surprise me a little bit that this fell off the list and that someone was so astute as to say their critique was one star. I'm really glad this isn't on AFI's top 100. (laughs) It provoked me to go look it up. So, that's that's all I have to say. I just interesting to me. The but I think it also speaks to that particular uh, letterboxed reviewer that they put so much stake into AFI's top one hundred yeah. lists. Yeah, I don't I don't think about it every day. AFI, yeah, <laughs> I don't no. think about it every day. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, what do you got? All right. Well, I've got a three and a half star uh, review by Kayla. Who has this to say? Men are literally terrifying WTF. <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> Which I just think is so funny. <laughs> thanks, Letterboxd. Or should we say thanks, Canadian Consortium of Business Owners who just put a bunch of money in Letterboxd and kept our dear friends and founders on the list? Mm. Thanks to you guys, too. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. 
After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.